Well, guys, welcome to week four in our series, Different. Now, different is a word that's often used to describe something that is unlike a person, place, or thing. As in, my Uncle Eddie is different, or that house is different. But different also means separate or distinct. Well, that has a different taste to it. Now, during this series, we're going to look at why God calls us to be different and how we can be different in a post-Christian culture. So being different requires a different perspective. And if God is calling us to be different in a post-Christian culture, then we need to have his perspective. We need to have a different perspective. And it matters how we see things. It matters how we see people. And it matters how we see circumstances. Now, as we see things differently, we're going to be able to respond differently. Now, let's take a moment and answer this question. What is the value of the four-digit number? I'll give you some time on this. Here's a hint. Look for the circles. Look for the circles. Well, the answer is two, because there are two circles in all four numbers. Eight has two circles. The other numbers do, you know, don't have any circles. Now, the whole point of the brain teaser, like we've done every week, is to assure us that how we see life, how we see people, how we see circumstances, it all matters. It matters how we see these things. And if we're not seeing it in the right frame, the right perspective, then we're going to miss getting it right. And we all want to get life right. Now, how many of us have heard our kids or teenagers or maybe our students say that they have a right to something? We're noticing this as our daughter's learning the Bill of Rights. And you know, before she learned about the Bill of Rights, she believed that she had some rights. Now she's convinced that she has some rights. You know, for those who uh, most of us know, the Bill of Rights are protections of our individual rights, and they're added to the Constitution of the United States. Now, for those who are watching and listening, maybe you're watching and listening from outside the United States, um, the Constitution is our supreme law. Okay? That, that's the law that is used to govern our country. Some of the rights included in the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, religion, press, uh, assembly, uh, the right to a speedy trial, uh, legal counsel, and also the right to bear arms. And if you're uh, not understanding what that means, it's the right to have a gun or own guns. Um, I had a friend growing up, and he believed that he had the right uh, to use a bad word. Uh, and this wasn't Craig. You remember Craig from a few weeks ago, how Craig you know, said something to Miss Smeltzer in second grade, and she <laughs> pulled him by his rat tail, and we saw him kicking and screaming down the hallway. as someone else. He believed he had the right to use this bad word. And he believed that he was under the protection of the freedom of speech. And so he, he went into that day knowing that he was going to use this word. And he used the word in the classroom and towards the teacher. He used the word. He was sent to the principal's office. He believed and he pled his case that he had the right to free speech principal corrected him and said, man, that's not how it works here. See, we have to provide a safe learning environment for all kids. And that's our right. That's our right. He said, so our right trumps or basically comes before your right. Even after the incident, man, he believed he was right. This is a kid who didn't want anybody to tell him what to do. And in fact, he believed that nobody could tell him what to do, that after graduation, he joined the military. 
Go figure. Now, rights are, are, are such an American thing. They're such a Western thing. And the truth is that during the time of Jesus and when the New Testament was written, rights were not equal. Notice what Tom Holland, how he observes on what life was like in the Greek and Roman cultures. He said that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption well, that everybody possessed an inherent worth. And that did not happen in Rome. It did not happen in Greece. The, or, notice this. The origins of this principle lay not in the French Revolution, nor the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. Since American Western culture has been Christianized over the last 1,600 years, we have in our core as a nation values rooted in the Bible. Now, perhaps intentional or maybe forgetful, it seems that culture has turned it around and has viewed Christianity as an institution that takes away rights, including women's rights. Now, we're going to learn that without Jesus, without New Testament writings and the early church, there would be no foundation for women's rights. Let's look at what life was like for a woman living in the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire was disproportionately male. Now, women died from childbirth. Uh, baby girls would have been uh, victims of child exposure. Notice what a Roman soldier, he's on the battlefield, he writes his wife. This is in 1 BC. This is what he's written. This is the instructions that he gives her. Above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If it is female, cast it out. Babies with disabilities were also victims of child exposure. Notice what Aristotle, yes, the Aristotle, what he wrote. Let there be a law that no deformed baby shall live. Men were inferior to women and sex was how it was proved. Women were under a different set of marital and uh, sexual expectations than men. So women, if you were married, you were expected to remain faithful even if your husband wasn't. You were seen as baby makers, right? Birthing heirs and legitimate kids. That was your one job. And if you didn't get that one job right, you were exiled. I mean, that's what Commodus did. I think I'm saying his right. right one of the emperors, that's what he did. He sent his wife because she could not birth an heir. Um, men, including husbands, were given more freedom to have sex with other women, prostitutes, escorts, and slave boys and girls. I mean, notice what Demosthenes, what he writes. He says, we have heteri. Men have heteri. Heteri are concubines for pleasure, female slaves for our daily care. It was a sexual yeah, euphemism. And wives to give us legitimate children and be guardians of our household. Tom Holland, he says this, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of the road as a toilet. And the reason why I bring this up is because it's really important to know what Jesus was up against, what life really was like for Jews living in the Roman Empire. 
And if the early church was able to outlast the mighty, powerful Roman Empire, we could have that early church moment where we're able to balance the tension of truth and grace. And we're able to win people over because we see rights differently. So, as we look at how Jesus treated women, it's important to embrace that Jesus was God in the flesh. It's really important. And we see this in John 1.14, that Jesus is God. The Word was God and became flesh and made His home among us. See, before Jesus was the miracle worker and the master teacher from Nazareth, He was the Creator. And that matters. And the reason why this is so important is because we see from the very first pages of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, that God set it up from the beginning that men and women are equal. Notice, and we've, we've seen this passage a couple weeks in a row. We're going to refer to it again. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. See, Genesis, before it was written, it was an oral tradition. It was an oral story told. And it was told in a culture of Middle Eastern nomads and settlers. Women in that culture were not honored. They were not equal to men. And in fact, this would have been very scandalous because God set it up that women were image bearers just like men. And they were equal with men, even though they were different. And God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the fish, over the birds, over the animals. And the language that men and women were created in God's image, it revealed inherent worth and dignity. Unlike in that Middle Eastern culture, This meant that men, and it meant that women, were intentionally created with equality and purpose. There are several examples when Jesus begins his ministry. Jesus, remember, being the creator, as he stepped on the pages of our New Testament, he is also the heaven uh, king. He's also the king of heaven, and he treated women with inherent dignity and worth. Notice how the biographers of Jesus begin telling the story how Jesus embraced women who were dishonored by their culture and even religious leaders. Let's start with his mom. Let's start with Mary. Jesus, it was clear that he loved his mom. He loved his mom. And in that culture, honor was very important. And so in John 2, we read about the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And so they're running out of wine, and that was going to be a big dishonor to the family's name. And so when Mary heard about it, she went to her son, Jesus, and said, Jesus, can you help? And Jesus turned water into wine, and he prevented the family from experiencing shame. Another example in Luke 7 is the grieving widow. And not only has she lost her husband, now she's lost her son. She's lost her only son, the one that was going to care and provide for her. She's grieving, and Jesus felt compassion on her, and he raised her son to life. Then later on in Luke 7, we see the immoral woman. Most likely, she's a prostitute. She's an outcast. 
And she took expensive perfume, washed Jesus' feet with that perfume with her hair. In response, Jesus forgave her sins. And that caused a huge scandal with the religious leaders because only God could forgive sins. And Jesus provided a woman desperate for peace. He provided for her forgiveness and peace with God. Then later in Luke 8, we read about Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. One was, do you know, this is so important. She was one of the first witnesses of the resurrection. And in that time, a a woman's testimony meant nothing. But Jesus trusted that the first witnesses of the resurrection would be women. Mary Magdalene being one of them. And then in John 4, we read about the Samaritan woman she had a couple things against her. One, that she was a Samaritan, but also that she was unmarried and living with a man that she wasn't even married to. And then she ended up being one of the very first people that Jesus revealed his identity to, that he was the Messiah. And then the sisters from Bethany, Martha and Mary, Mary and Martha, they were treated with honor. And also, I love how Jesus, he, he loved the fact that Mary was learning along with the men it's incredible. People were drawn to Jesus and, and women were drawn to Jesus. And it continued before, it continued even after the resurrection. In fact, where the Roman Empire was disproportionately male, the early church was disproportionately female. And notice what Celsus, he's a Greek philosopher, and he observed how the church, and he believed the church really manipulated people. And notice what he writes. He says, Christians, they show they want and are able to convince only the foolish, only the dishonorable and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. They can't get the men because Rome had an ideal of what a man looks like. In Rome, the man was about power, was about control. It was about you can sleep whoever you want to sleep with. But Jesus on the other side, man, he raised a standard for men. He had a different design for men. And that was about sacrifice and serving. See, even in today's culture, cultures where there, is, um, where there isn't equality, the church happens to be predominantly female. Places like Syria, Lebanon, and China. Now, believe it or not, female engagement is higher than male engagement in the American church. So if Jesus and the early church were pro, was pro-women, then why in the world is Christianity viewed as an opponent of women's rights in Western culture? And Rebecca McLaughlin, she observes that culture has placed a women's right to abortion as the central tenet to women's rights. This is what she writes. I believe that women are equal to men. I believe that we should have many opportunities that have historically been denied to us and that we should be paid the same salary for the same work, but rather than see abortion rights as a central plank of the feminist structure, I believe its central plank should be the cross. So from the New Testament biographies of Jesus, we see that if if we're going to look at abortion, we see how Jesus treated women. Let's see how Jesus treated kids because it was so countercultural to Roman the Roman Empire. It it was so crazy. So we see in Matthew 19, Jesus 
publicly teaching against the cultural norm of abandoning women and kids through divorce. As women and kids were left behind by fathers and husbands, he, he say, no, that's not the way to go. That's not God's design. And then in Matthew 19, we also read that he blessed the little kids when Roman culture promoted child exposure. Jesus blessed babies in Luke 18 when the Roman culture promoted infanticide. When he was teaching the disciples, when he was teaching his students, he was like, man, allow the kids to come to me. Don't tell them not to come to me. I want them to come to me. Invite them to come to me. Paul Offit, a a non-Christian professor, said this about Jesus. At the time of Jesus' life, child abuse, as noted by one historian, was the crying vice of the Roman Empire. Infanticide was common. Abandonment was common. Children were property no different than slaves. But Jesus stood up for children, cared about them when those around him typically didn't. See, the early church came. They came in, and we talked about this last week, how babies were in the trash heap, or babies were left out in the cold, or babies were thrown in a body of water. Christians would come, and they would rescue those babies and raise those babies. And then it happened for several centuries that way, and then... Constantine becomes a follower of Jesus. He becomes a Christian. He passed laws protecting women and children. And there was a law set up that when you're born into poverty, he would use the local churches as community centers where women and children could receive food and clothing. See, the approach from Jesus and the early church was very holistic. Being pro-children goes beyond the womb. It was providing care for women and, and helping men stay faithful in their marriage, being staying faithful as dads, modeling Jesus's life, modeling his example of leading through service and sacrifice. It's interesting that several of my friends who pastor churches in like inner cities have mentioned the majority of women who are looking for abortion as their only option are living around or below the poverty line and are in a non-marital relationship with a father who wants no responsibility. Did you know the two factors there? Poverty and fatherlessness? See, those are the two factors that Jesus and the early church leaders addressed head on. So it, question on the, day, on the table is, is it possible that with the right support, women would see another option? With abortion being the central tenet to women's rights, the claim is that women should have the right to decide what they do with their bodies. And our culture has made a distinction between human beings and human persons. Most would agree that everyone is a human being from inside the womb, but some would argue that a human person outside the womb has certain rights and certain capacities. And so the question needs to be asked, okay, well, how long outside the womb does one go from being a human being to being a human person? Now, notice how Peter Singer, an atheist, how he explains this distinction. He says, A weak old baby is not a rational and self-conscious being. And there are many non-human animals whose rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, capacity, and so on exceed that of a human baby, a week or a month old. The life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. 
image. If we're not made in God's image, here's the deal. If we're not made in God's image, then there are no different, then we're no different than the animals who eat their own offspring. You think the bloody fish, you think of sharks and lions and even chimps, right? It means that we do not have human rights, that we're no different than the animals. We're no different. But if we are made in God's image, it means that we do have inherent worth, that we do have inherent value, that we do have rights. See, the values of Jesus and his kingdom are different from the cultures of this world. Jesus' death on the cross reveal the authority in his kingdom is not about power and control. It's about sacrifice and service. In Jesus' kingdom, the ones growing in their capacities, the weak are just as equal, just as valuable as those who have certain capabilities. Strong. Going back to Rebecca McLaughlin's observation that what we should, what should be the central tenet of women's rights, and this is what she says. If Christianity is true, the central plank of women's rights isn't our right to have unborn babies killed. The central plank of women's rights is Mary's unborn child who grew to be the man who valued us so much he died on a Roman cross so we could live. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth shouted to her pregnant cousin, Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Y'all, we are called to model Jesus's empathy. We're, we're called to model his listening ear. We are called to model his kindness with those who are looking at their options and those who have have had an abortion. Even though we're unable to forgive their sins, we're able to share the story of the immoral woman who was an outcast and how she took expensive perfume and used it to wash Jesus' feet. And in response, Jesus, he, he forgave her sins and he gifted her with peace. And here's the truth. When someone accepts and follows Jesus, we're thankful to know that there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. See, Jesus provides us identity. When we're living with forgiveness, we're free. We're at peace with God. That, that becomes identity. And we're told that there is no condemnation. Christ doesn't condemn us. Why are some of us, why are we condemning ourselves? He's, we've, we've already been forgiven, right? We've sought forgiveness. He's forgiven us. Why are we continuing to condemn ourselves? Self-condemnation doesn't fit. Because we may experience guilt, and, that's, and that could be a really good thing because the Holy Spirit uses that guilt to get us back on track. Remember, guilt is about what I did. Shame, on the other hand, is about who I am. And we need to resist shame because shame is about our identity. And the Holy Spirit will remind us who we are and what we are called to do. Not to, the Holy Spirit's not going to dwell on shame, on who we're not. Man, shame attacks identity, but guilt, it gets us aligned with how God sees us. So if I could encourage any of you, may, maybe... You struggle with this whole tension between abortion and, and your view of it. And maybe you've, you've gone down that road or maybe you're questioning a few things. I'm just hoping that you, when you've sought his forgiveness, that you're not condemning yourself. Because when you've sought his forgiveness, 
Self-condemnation doesn't fit. Guys, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to open up the New Testament and realize that, man, Jesus loved women. Jesus loved kids. That he really, he really gave us the foundation for women's rights. And we're thankful for that. God, I pray right now the tension that maybe some of us feel. God, I pray that we would really take to heart. We would just memorize that if we belong to Christ Jesus, there is, no, there is now no condemnation. Holy Spirit, please use guilt to get us back on track, but remind us of who we are and what we are called to do. Allow the cross to be the central tenet to all of our rights. Father, I pray for those who might be on the fence about Jesus and maybe they're not a follower of Jesus. I ask that all they would see who he is. They would see who he is. And you have, how we're even reading about non-Christian common, you know, historians and commentators who, who say and speak so highly of Jesus. Obviously, there's something different about Jesus. I just ask that, Father, you would, you would draw men and women to yourself to see just how amazing Jesus is. That they would make him their leader and their savior by believing and confessing that Jesus died for their sins so they could live. Father, again, thank you so much. Help us in our conversations this week to make sure that we're balancing truth and grace. Truth is what we say. Grace is how we say it. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.